Welcome to the Capital Light Assembly podcast brought to you by Edison Manufacturing and Engineering. Edison is your low volume contract manufacturing partner focused on Capital Light Assembly of complex mobility and energy products. Fun episode. I'm looking forward to I have a special guest I'm joined here by Alex Mitchell. Well, first of all, Alex, th thanks for joining. Thank you, Brandon. It's good to be with you. Yeah, I think this will be really, really fun. So one, I mentioned I was inspired. So we've we've talked on several topics, and I, I really appreciate your perspective in this industry. I think you come from a unique background with European, North American experience, global automotive strategy experience, as well as some of the earliest stage startups. And <clears throat> you have some, I think, well-formed thoughts and opinions about manufacturing and what goes into growth and stuff like that, which I'm I'm happy to, I'm looking forward to diving into. So with that said, would you mind just giving a quick intro, kind of who 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 are you? What are you working on? Sure. Thank you. Again, thank you for having me, Brandon. Uh name is Alex Mitchell. Um, like you said, I've sort of spent the last 15, 20 years of my career in the transportation mobility space across a couple of car manufacturers, um, an, an EV startup, etc. And more recently, I've been affiliated with Los Angeles Cleantech Incubator, or LACI, where we have a portfolio of a number of companies in the mobility manufacturing space, from aerospace, micromobility, four-wheel devices, you name it. Um, I currently there serve as a senior advisor on a number of projects. Um, and then in addition to investing in the mobility space, I also run a newsletter um, called Sustainable Mobility, which writes on some topics, including the emergence of, of re-emergence, I guess I should say, of contract manufacturing um, in parts of the transportation manufacturing space. Yeah, and I, and I do, I'll make sure to, to link to it here. I, I do yeah. recommend if you're listening to this and you like these uh, these topics, Sustainable Mobility, your your uh, newsletter is one of the few ones that I, I, I'd open and read from start to finish every time it comes out. So I, I you definitely do a good job there. Um, Thank you. So yeah, so this this topic of contract manufacturing so i guess if you wouldn't mind maybe starting what what has this meant kind of historically for the end what, what has been the role of contract manufacturing in the, the transportation sector in the past yeah and and i'll i'll start with a folk I, I think throughout this conversation we should obviously not just touch on passenger car but and make sure we touch on the other mm -hmm. topics but as you look at the dollar volume that has been driving in contract manufacturing, it really has historically been sort of light commercial vehicles, you know, passenger cars and and light trucks. So I'll, I'll focus there. And I, as I think about like the history of contract manufacturing, I sort of see three different phases. The first phase, I would argue, was the coach building phase. I mean, that was in and of itself its own sort of contract manufacturing process. So the original automobile manufacturers were doing body on frame manufacturing um, and would ship, you know, to, to somebody like a coach builder body by Fisher. And I would argue, okay, that was integrated. Fisher was part of general motors, but mm -hmm. there were a lot of those relationships where that was not a, um, a company subsidiary, but somebody was shipping um, uh, a vehicle to somebody else to finish manufacturing um, with the frame. Um, and so that was the coach building era. And that sort of, there were so many contract manufacturers in that era, we just called them coach builders rather than contract manufacturers. That sort of waned as a lot of people transitioned from body on frame to unibody construction. Um, then the second phase was much more predominant in Europe than it was in the US, which was then the second half of the 20th century um, and a little bit into the, the current century which was sort of think of it as, hey, I'm a BMW, I'm a Chrysler, I'm a whoever, 
And for various moments and purposes, it made sense to actually not manufacture yourself and farm that out to a third party. Um, that could be because you lacked critical scale in the marketplace. So that's, you know, Chrysler used to build Voyager minivans in Europe because um, they didn't have significant scale in Europe and had somebody else build their minivans for sale. Um, or because you had a unique model that didn't have huge volumes, but you still felt there was a good business case, you know, it might have been a convertible or something like that. So that was definitely prominent, you know, and there were firms and continue to be firms like Magma, Magna and Belmet who do that. Um, again, more in Europe than in the U.S. Um, and that was, you know, sort of a niche business uh, for, or, you know, niche in the grand scheme if you're BMW, a large business if you're Magna mm -hmm. um, for, for many decades. And, and I think we're now beginning, because of electrification, I think we're now beginning to see a really big shift in what that contract manufacturing is. And it will no longer go from being something sort of on the margins to, I think it will become something that is much more front and center of how people think about manufacturing cars um, going forward. And do you see that? So maybe one question. So why, why has over the past few decades, contract manufacturing been so much more prevalent in Europe than North America? Yeah. I wish I had a great answer for you. I can give you some, um, reasons that come to mind um one is you know there's almost at times a penalty or or a homogenization that happens when you have a large market like the u.s where you've got you know from one factory you can supply all of the u.s and fairly homogenous consumer tastes yes okay in certain regions pickups are more popular than minivans but whereas in europe you know you're going to have I would argue much more heterogeneous customer um, typologies, potentially very different energy policies in different markets or, you know, consumer taste, you name it. Um, and so more of an attitude and an expectation of uh, European consumers that they might have more variety than you would get in the U.S. Um, for example, historically, there have been more, um, more global brands who chose to sell in Europe and not the U.S., partly just because of the um, that sort of homogeneity of the U.S. market. Mm -hmm. um, and, and also coach building really began as a profession in Europe. And so maybe just because its roots was there, it stayed uh, prevalent and predominant um, in, the, in the contract manufacturing space as well. Yeah, and there, there might be a culture, just a, a culture piece too, right? Of like, for whatever reason, so I, before my current role at Edison, like I, I was in the engineering services space and for whatever reason that was it was much more common that it's just engineering services companies do huge chunks of work for european oems than it is for north america like that that model is not as native for the yeah. north american oem so maybe there's maybe there's good reasons like you're talking to in the background for why that is maybe it's just a cultural type thing but yeah that, that's interesting though but then looking at where we are now so you mentioned electrification as a key shift so why does that potentially change the math? And if so, how, like, what, what's, what do you see kind of evolving? Yeah. So I think when you look back at the second half of the last century, how most car companies sort of competed and won was on manufacturing. And a lot of the IP and manufacturing capabilities that went along with the in-house manufacturing of their own uh, engines, for example, you know, that was very clearly something that was 
proprietary and a driver of their competitive um, standing. As you look at, in the EV space, what drives success for a car company, a lot of manufacturing in EV is decently simpler than manufacturing uh, uh, an internal combustion engine car. So just in the news this week, Ford is having some layoffs in Europe. And one of the reasons they're citing for the layoffs is, look, it just takes fewer individuals to manufacture EVs than it does gasoline-powered cars. So, and, and conversely, what then would allow you to succeed in the EV era as a manufacturer is less about things you can do on the manufacturing side and more about upstream R&D or downstream software that the customer touches. And so I think you're seeing manufacturing going from something that was like a must own because it's the source of um, competitive advantage to something that may be a crisis of entry in the category, but not always the most differentiating factor. And where people might say, look, the automobile industry is super complex and vast, we know we need to invest in our own internal uh, battery management system software. We know we need to invest in downstream customer software for charging and the customer experience. And, and maybe because, you know, it's simpler to assemble EVs than it is to build gasoline-powered cars. Maybe we don't own that anymore. Maybe we partner with somebody else on that. So I think the EV simpler manufacturing makes that and how it doesn't necessarily drive competitive advantage as much anymore might make people say, huh, maybe I will partner with somebody else on this rather than keep the manufacturing in-house. And how, how do you think, so yeah, I, I completely agree that manufacturing of EVs is simpler than conventional or, or hybrid vehicles. How, there have been a few high profile examples of uh, i think tech companies real or like techish companies realizing that yeah it's simple but it's still not easy right so the the yeah. the design for manufacturing ability the ability to and maybe that is more design type stuff but the ability to put together a product in a way that can be manufactured and then actually execute on like there is there is a significant barrier to entry there so how how much of it as well is that like by outsourcing some of this manufacturing these companies are able to avoid that pitfall that they might otherwise run into if they aren't necessarily automotive manufacturing experts. Yeah. Well, I think that gets to sort of a little bit more about where does the contract manufacturing industry go? Mm -hmm. And if you were, you know, an upstart, whether, you know, a tech company who's considering having a car built for your purposes or a a startup that wants to be the next, you know, Tesla Rivian, but says we don't want to own manufacturing. I think either way, you want to think through sort of as you think about contract manufacturing, where it touches some of the other key points in the value stream. Um, obviously, you know, you want it to be close to the end customer. But what's I think newer about some of the models I'm seeing in contract manufacturing that didn't exist as much 40, 50 years ago is the potential to bundle that with supply chain right so is the person who's doing your contract manufacturing also responsible for actually procurement and logistics of getting the vehicles or the parts to the factory mm -hmm. um in some ways that's actually getting harder to do than it used to be we have battery shortages right now and are 
expected to have battery shortages for the next several years as various mines come on on site, et cetera. So if you're a small startup, your ability to actually even just get capacity from CATL, Panasonic, BYD, you name it, might be limited. And actually going through a contract manufacturer who has scale and volume might be how you get sort of supply chain as well covered. Um, the other thing linked to that is, are you coming with your own engineering, your own platform, or are they supplying it? So one of the novel things that Foxconn is doing, which Magna, for example, Magna, for those who sort of are tuning in for the first time on this topic, Magna is historically one of the giants in this space. I, I'm not aware, there might be one or two exceptions, but like Magna didn't engineer vehicles on behalf of their clients. They manufactured them. You know, there was a BMW design that was designed and engineered by BMW that then Magna was manufacturing. What Foxconn is proposing is something quite different, which is like the fundamental platform is ours and you can modify on top of it. Um, so that's a pretty um, pretty big piece. And then, you know, along with that, all the engineering services uh, as well. So those are sort of like new wrinkles that I think are are emerging on the supply chain side and the sort of engineering slash platform side that weren't always key parts of the um, contract manufacturing proposition several decades ago. And do you see any specific profile of areas where you, you think this will become even more prevalent? So, I mean, right. So we're, we're specifically in the low volume contract manufacturing space. So we, we yeah. don't compete directly with Foxconn and, and Magna. I don't in, in many places like we top off at 5,000 units per year, somewhere around there usually, but we tend to see that it's these obscure products that present challenges for traditional manufacturing, whether it's for a large OEM uh, tier one, or a lot of times startups, like that's where we provide a ton of value because those are kind of the the pain in the neck problems that we can help yeah. solve. But that's just a small subset of, I think, this greater topic that we're talking about here. So where where do you see that math playing out or like the types of, I don't know, the, the, the profile of a, of a situation where a company, whether it's a, an upstart or established company, thinking more dressed or more differently about the utilizing a contract manufacturing partner rather than doing everything in-house. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll pivot to a different form factor that we haven't talked about a ton yet in the conversation, but one where I do think there's mm -hmm. a lot of logical demand, which is um, micromobility, right? So bikes, e-bikes, scooters, um, all of our supply chain right now for those devices is in, in East Asia. And we certainly saw during COVID some of the supply chain challenges with having manufacturing so far away. We also saw then, you know, any number, like at Lacey, for example, we had any number of portfolio companies who said, I have customer orders, I have demand, but I literally can't get them filled because, you know, my contract manufacturing partners in, in Asia are not able to ship right now. They've got COVID disruptions, et cetera. Um, so I think as the, the North American micromobility industry scales up, the logical first step is to say, if you're an emerging or existing bike scooter manufacturer to say, okay, for gen three of our product, let's not have a long cycle time between sort of the, the first batch and scaling. Let's do the first batch here in the US, test it out, make any final changes, and then maybe we'll work with, with somebody else um, overseas. And, and so I think micromobility manufacturing is going to come back to the U.S. and it will sort of go through waves, one of which will be 
micromobility, contract manufacturing for just those initial several hundred or a couple thousand units that you need to test as you're like, okay, we'll go national with this scooter or bike design, but we need to make sure um, we do that. We do that first. Mm-hmm. Um, and in addition to sort of the logic behind some of the COVID supply chain disruptions we had in micromobility, you can clearly see in the Inflation Reduction Act the push behind Made in America and all the logic there is. And so the more you know people can think about in contract manufacturing doing that domestically, that's going to change tax implications, availability to get incentives, um, all that. And so I think contract manufacturing is due for a big boost when it comes to um, micro-ability. And then to your point on like below 5,000 unit runs, maybe in four-wheeled vehicles, I think there's going to be a lot of fleet customers who are going to to look at this space. Um, So if you take the world of fleet customers, B2B is another way, you know, to say fleet, they generally care a whole lot less about the brand and care a whole lot less about total cost of ownership, parts availability, reliability, and can it just do the job that my employees need? So that's everything from, you know, last mile delivery companies that deliver parcels and and food that's, um, you know, maybe companies who have a fleet of sales reps who are visiting dozens of customers uh, over a course of a week. You name it, there's, you know, about 20% of the U.S. car market is fleet sales. And historically, all of those have had sort of needs that haven't been fully met because they have had to, like, pick from a limited selection of, well, I can buy a Ford van or a GM van. That's sort of really my choice. Mm-hmm. Um but going forward for those last mile delivery companies, for whoever else, there may be enough of an existing platform out there from somebody, Foxconn or whoever else, um, or a donor chassis from somebody that justifies for them saying, gosh, you know, we don't need the Ford brand per se. We need the following specifications and we can get it with a 3000 unit manufacturing run of the contract manufacturer let's go ahead, it's cheaper, and it's going to get us a better product for our unique use case. So I think there's going to be a lot of fleets of various volumes and and various sort of just use cases who will say, is working with a contract manufacturer to get our next vehicle the right move, rather than working via, you know, a traditional OEM and their dealership network. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And maybe pulling pulling this topic together. So I've really enjoyed your thoughts on this trend, the shift, potential shift in the industry, how things are going. I guess maybe the closing question here is like, who should care, right? So who 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 should be really watching and paying attention to this? So it sounds like someone who's starting a micro mobility company should realize that, yeah, maybe the model could look different. I don't do traditional OEMs. Is this something that they need to be weary of this trend, or like what looking at out, out, looking at this as a threat or an opportunity? Um, who who else are the people it's, who should be? Caring? It's well for the traditional OEMs. I think it's both. Um, you know, there wasn't always contract manufacturing opportunities. To your point, as many in North America as there were in Europe, Latin America, etc. It hasn't been a big industry, but now if you're an OEM and you say, hey we're native to this region of the world and that's going to be our our bread and butter but we want to be a player in latin america and in north america and now there's a contract manufacturing industry 
that may be the better return on capital for our shareholders. So let's, you know, in regions that aren't Asia, let's say, let's work with contract manufacturers or vice versa. If you're a, mm-hmm. you know, emerging uh, American manufacturer like Arivian, you may say, hey, look, for our European operations, let's partner with a contract manufacturer. Um, so I think it's it's both a threat and an opportunity. And most car companies have been pretty disciplined around looking around the world when they produce a model and try to figure out where's sort of the lowest cost place we can we can do it. Um, so I think it's it's an opportunity and a threat for for both of them. But the the number of people who are going to join the space of building you know cars or vans is is clearly a lot larger. Uh, the window of who can enter is uh, there's fewer barriers to entry. So, you know, there's already been Rivian, Fisker, Lordstown, there's going to be more. And I think for every single one of those companies that starts, they're going to want to think through, do we want all of the complexity of launching a car company or we can, can we actually focus on our maybe software IP and chunk out manufacturing as a competency for somebody else? So you're going to have that. I think you're also going to continue to have some of the tech players look at what they might do um, in this space, um, some of the big tech companies. And again, they may say, we don't necessarily want to own all this manufacturing process. You know, the, obviously the classic example there is Apple with Foxconn. Mm-hmm. Um, so there may be some more of those big tech players who decide to enter parts of the mobility space via working with a contract manufacturer. Yeah, no, I would claim that, I mean, situation dependent but it's it could be a good way to maintain optionality right and dip your toe in the water not make a huge capital expend uh, capital outlay and wait until you confirm whether there's the market demand and that the the product's going to look a certain way before you make i mean that shift from external to internal isn't always the smoothest shift but like it there is a potential there i think to kind of delay that decision until it's less risky yeah absolutely absolutely Cool. Well, Alex, I, I really appreciate getting getting your thoughts on this. Like I like I said at the beginning, I mean, definitely subscribe to the, the sustainability mobility or sustainable mobility pod sustainable mobility newsletter if you haven't yet. Um yeah, anything we missed here, anything you want to close with, Alex? No, I think that was it. Look, this is a uh, a really cool time for folks like Edison who are in this space, Edison Manufacturing. Because again, whether you're talking about manufacturing EV chargers, which you didn't necessarily touch on, mm-hmm. um, micro-ability, three-wheel devices, four-wheel, it's sort of a new golden era for contract manufacturing because of just some of the unique differences between everything that used to run on gasoline and things that might run on on uh, batteries. Yeah, I think that that's a good place to leave it. Well, thanks again, Alex. Really appreciate it and best luck to you. Thank you, Brandon.